In this episode of Common Sense EMEA, we'll be talking to the founder of Fernway, one of the fastest growing cannabis brands in the Northeast with roots in Massachusetts and their sites possibly set on a few new states. We will see. Our guest today will helping will be helping me show my age by finally explaining to me what the hell the difference between all concentrates are and getting off my damn lawn. Liam O'Brien, welcome to Con- Common Sense EMEA. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a wonderful pleasure to finally have you here. Uh, full disclosure, a brand new, very, very happy client, aren't you, Liam? <laughs> yes, very much so. Yes. Awesome. Uh, here's something we and share. I just want to say, I, yes. I would have taken the interview request even if uh, I was not a client. So, well, I am uh, charming. You know. I am charming regardless of uh, whether you pay me or not. So, I appreciate <laughs> it uh, either way. So, uh, so here's something we share. Um, we're both products of fairly prestigious New England preparatory schools. Uh, oh yeah, presume, which one did you go to? Well, presumably, we also avoided being kicked out of those schools for smoking <laughs> cannabis. Uh, and then eventually started cannabis company. So congratulations, you made it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, finally, someone from a New England prep school finally gets an advantage in life. One of us finally did it. It was going to be you or me. Or it was one of us, bound, bound to yeah. be one of us. Uh, I went to a school in New Hampshire called Kimball Union Academy. Uh, I feel yeah. like all the best prep schools are in New Hampshire, uh, but that's just <laughs> me, Liam. I don't know. I mean, I'm just a I, humble uh, prep school grad. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to fight you on that. It's not a subject matter that I feel particularly passionate about. Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) Me neither. Uh, I was a PG. I did. I just did a PG year uh, at Kimball Union. I was a boarder and there's always, you know, there are clicks between the day students and the boarders, the boarding mm-hmm. students are, you know, there's that for me, cause I was one, uh, there's a bit of a mystique for the day students because they got to go home and do who knows what at the end of the day. Uh, yeah. and you know, us, us boarders had to, you know, huddle around a, f- a fire in a big oil drum and try to keep warm. Um, I remember I was an amazing, I could make a spoof you know, like the thing you blow smoke, you know, I could make one out of almost anything. And I avoid like I there was no way I was giving up weed when I went to prep school. There was just no way I, I was the product of, of public school. So, I just, you know, I was like I it couldn't it couldn't be done. Um, and I avoided every opportunity to be expelled from school. And and I did amazingly. Um <laughs> It was a lot of work going to prep school. It's not the same thing. It's it's a whole different ball of wax. Tell me about your your experience. I I couldn't agree more. It is definitely a lot of work, and I think that uh, you know is something that at the time I resented, and now looking back, I'm pretty grateful for because I think it helps build a, a particular degree of work ethic around certainly around just like composition and projects, but it also was one of those experiences that I look back on and I'm like, yeah, you know, I. Uh, I had a lot of homework. Damn. Like, yeah. I think I had more homework than a lot of people. And, Definitely you, did. Uh, and, you know, maybe, uh, maybe that was what made me that maybe that was what makes me now feel so comfortable, you know, pouring through spreadsheets and emails and public records and regulations. Um, but yeah, I, uh, so I went to, uh, I went to a high school that was a, it's a day, day school in New Haven, Connecticut called Hopkins. And, I was also a product of public school, but the public high school that I was about to go into, I was in junior high and I was about to graduate and go into the public high school, um, was experiencing some like really gnarly issues. Uh, there was 
uh, black mold in the building. The <laughs> PTA voted down like 17 straight budgets. There was a bunch of power struggles going on on the uh, administration level. And my mom, who was bearing witness to this because my sister at the time was uh, finishing up her senior year in that high school, sort of evaluated that and said, mm, I, I don't think this is a good place to send you. So we I got to uh, get Liam I, out of this tire fire. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, I, I at the time uh, was, you know, I was I was totally open to, to finding, you know, a, a new class of friends, a new group of friends. Um, you know, I still yeah. had folks that I was leaving behind from my old school. But, you know, I was going from junior high to high school and it kind of felt like a natural transition point to be able to get a fresh start. And not only did I get that fresh start, but also I ended up meeting the, uh, the guys who I got high with for the very first time. And who years later became my co-founders of Fernway. It's funny how that happens. And that's kind of the, the brings me into my next uh, rant statement. And maybe even there's a question in there, Liam. I don't know. Maybe we'll have a conversation. Who knows how much I'll railroad this. Um, I feel like the public perception of things like skull and bones or the Illuminati, like I kind of get why those exist because organ, you know, institutions like Hopkins, like Kimball union, all these old prep schools, they exist. And what happens is, you, you know, you're thrust into living with these people, you know, you're, you're, you've gone from being a public, you know, and not you, cause you were a day student, but me, I graduated public school. You know, I went through 12 years of public school and then was thrust into a dorm with all these people from all over the country and all over the world. Uh, uh, the the great grandson of Otto von Bismarck was in my graduating <laughs> class. Like, and people are like, that's fucking crazy. Otto von Bismarck wasn't a real person. Like, yeah, he was actually, you know, he was the king of Prussia. Like what's Prussia. So like the, the fact that people think like, you know, there's an advantage to people who go to these schools. It's not far from the truth. And, and you no, do no, no. build the, you know, and that's part of the lure of these prep schools and private colleges or that, you are embedded with people that you perhaps would not have otherwise met uh, in your life. And you develop these networks that then turn into professional networks. And sometimes if you're lucky, you like you meet lifelong friends. And even if you're luckier, you turn those friends into, into co-founders. So it's I, I'm true. Kind of, Although I, yeah. I do want to, yeah. I do want to just add one caveat there, which is that Though I did meet uh, and though I, though, I, though I did go to high school and become friends with uh, two out of my three co-founders um, and I've known them for, for many years. We've been getting high together for many years. <laughs> One of them, uh, my partner, Kevin, I actually met him even earlier in my life because he used to take violin lessons from my mom. Interesting. Yeah, so he's so, been around. So he's been hanging uh, around waiting for you to do something for a long time. He's like, either I'm going to start a band with this guy or, you know, there's something about Liam. I'm going to hang around with him for a little uh, while. It's a tangled web we weave. So talk to me a bit. I mean, I know when you're in high school, you're not really thinking about like, oh, these are going to be my, this will be my future professional network. And like, nah, you're just playing sports with these people. You're maybe in detention with them. You're smoking weed with them. You know, uh, if you're me deep, deep in the woods. <laughs> deep in the woods. Uh, but talk to me about like building those networks and kind of um, because the value of network, especially for a young entrepreneur, you, you'll, you are super lucky that they were your, your, your best friends, but talk to me about kind of building those out um, and, and kind of understanding, well, these are the people that I'm going to kind of put, put my professional fate into. 
I mean, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I had uh, any idea of that back in high school, but I think that the, the seeds were definitely planted because for me, um, I, you know, I look back on the decision that I made to leave my previous career and strike out with Fernway, uh, you know, strike out on the path of entrepreneurship. And it was, in retrospect, a decision and a decision that was made a lot easier. It was a lot easier to make that decision because of the relationships that I had had that had been built up over years and years and years with these guys. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go a little bit more into detail about that. So uh, after I graduated, uh, I went to college in New York City and um, between and so, so and then sophomore, junior and senior year, um, one of my co-founders, Kit, our CEO, he and I uh, shared a room. We were roommates. And, you know, uh, the college that I went to, I went to NYU. It doesn't have a lot of campus life. It's really right. just like, you know, it's, it's somewhat decentralized. You have to really create your own community. And so having a, having a friend who had known me in high school and someone who was my roommate, who, you know, I got along with enough to be able to share a room for three years, uh, was a really That's important, tough. it was a really important through line for me. And I think that, after I graduated, um, maintaining those friendships that I had with people that I went to high school with was, it also felt like I was, you know, holding on to a valuable connection, not because it was going to bring me professional uh, advantage in the future, but just because, you know, I, I value longtime relationships and friends. Sure. And because I had, you know, switched, because I, I had switched schools, because I didn't have a very large graduating class, uh, I think that every time that I found one of those relationships and connections, I could instantly tell that it was special and I would do whatever I could to continue to cultivate it, to appreciate it, to validate it. And I think that that has been something, you know, getting into that habit and sort of seeing the value of those relationships meant that when, for example, Kevin and Kit came to me and they said, hey, you know, and this was back in 2017, 2018, they said, Hey, you know, we're, you know, we're thinking about maybe leaving our jobs and starting a business together. And maybe in cannabis, are you interested? Like it did not, I didn't have to agonize over whether I said yes. I, I knew in my heart that this was a, a team and a group that I could trust because I'd known them through thick and thin. So let me ask you, because like, I've definitely, you know, been sitting around the table, maybe one drink too many with my buddies being like, we should start a bar or like, we should. <laughs> why don't we start a band? You know, like those things I've had, uh, you know, a thousand of those conversations with friends I love and friends I would start a band with or start a business with what talk to me about like, and I want to get into, we'll get a little bit more into this a little bit down the road, but I'm curious about that, that phone call from your buddies where they're like, Hey, this is what we're thinking about. What do you think? Like it's, you know, it, it sounds so flippant to be like, yeah, I was like, it was my buddy. So of course I was like, yeah, let's do it. I'm sure it was a, a much harder decision than that. Um, maybe not as hard as others, but I'm sure that's, you know, how do no, you know that this is the right thing? And this is just not another crazy conversation, you know, kids just being kid again or whatever. It's uh, it's a great question, and I think you're you're absolutely right that you know I can look back in retrospect and say oh it was, it was a super easy decision because look at all the great things that have happened. But at yeah. the time, I, I I was certainly not as confident as I am now. Um, but I think the the things that really uh, you know sort of defined that inflection point for me were that it felt like the stars were aligning a little bit. And yeah. what I mean by that is that um, so for 
so like I said, Kit and I had lived together in college, but then after college, he left New York to, to take a job uh, for Teach for America. Kevin had gone to college in Atlanta and he had stuck around in Atlanta afterwards because he had actually started his own business um, uh, in the nightlife industry. And so I was, you know, I, I, the, these two, you know, close friends of mine, I just didn't really have a chance to see that often. And then a few years later, Kit came back to New York to go to law school and Kevin moved up to New York to take a job uh, in management consulting. And for the first time in years, the three of us were like in the same town and we were able to hang out like old times. And so it felt both familiar, but also because I was in a place in my career where I had found a job I really liked, but I was uh, sort of similar to Kit and Kevin feeling like I had done all the spostas and was curious about what it would take to build something of my own. Like we all three had that same drive and that same desire. And the fact that we were able to talk about it with people who we felt so comfortable with and who had, you know, known us, you know, for many, many years, like it meant that that conversation felt like it carried more weight because it was something where I could, rather than feeling like, oh, well, this is a a lark. It's never going to happen because, you know, I don't know these guys and they don't know me. It was like, yeah, I could actually like envision spending a lot of time in the trenches with these guys. You know, that's, these are, these are my boys, you know, you have a a lifetime of friendship with them. Right. And then you, you you took this kind of space apart and then coming together, you're like, oh, there's actually some magic here. You know, like we're boys and we have fun and like, you know, we love to you know, what, watch the Patriots, like whatever it is you love to do. But, you know, there's something more here that's undeniable. Yeah, well, I will. I would be I would be remiss to leave out, though, one very key element of the stars aligning, which is that uh, when we were in the original, like when we were early, early on discussing this, like I said, it was early 2018. And we had an opportunity to do some fact finding, uh, to go to Boston to attend the New England Cannabis Convention, which was mm. going to be taking place that March. And uh, I, it, it felt like really the, mer- the first meaningful step that we were taking down this path. You know, before it was just like, you know, hanging out, share, you know, sharing ideas, sending links this, to articles back and forth. But this, this was, was like, a, uh, this was a fact finding event or this was, you guys were going as Fernway. We, we didn't even have a name at that point. We were just going to learn what we could, what we could because we were out, you know, we were outside of the cannabis industry and community. So we felt like, all right, we've got to actually take a trip. We've actually got to go yeah. and be there among the people. And we we got to the we got to the convention and it turned out that that was also the day that the regulations had been finalized and published so even though they hadn't opened up any adult use businesses yet everyone at the convention was like a buzz about yeah. what does this mean what are we going to be able to do what does a host community agreement mean how do we yep. you know and so that was really the uh the topic that was on everybody's lips and yeah. so that was really helpful for us because it meant that we were able to just immerse ourselves in everything from, you know, the, the panels and the lectures they were doing. We were able to, you know, talk to every single person who was exhibiting and get some, you know, relevant nugget of information out of them. And it was a really great immersive experience. But at the end of it, after a couple of days, we were driving back from Boston to New York. And I, I said to Kit, like, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I, you know, we, we had both basically acknowledged to each other, like, wow, this actually feels real. This feels like something we could do. We could pull off. Yeah. 
But then I said, you know, but there's one thing that I hadn't considered, which is that if we do this, we'll have to leave New York and move to Massachusetts. That to me is like pretty undeniable at this point. And I, at that point was engaged and I had not, I told my wife that I was going on this fact finding mission, but I had not made it out that, you know, oh, this is going to be. Who knew what you'd find? Yeah. And so now that I was realizing like, oh shit, like if I actually want to pursue this, I'm going to have to like really make some moves and I'm going to have to get buy-in from my wife and I'm going to, or at the time fiance. And like, I, I, and I was, and I was really, I was really like, I really wanted to make sure that I was being a good partner by making sure that my excitement and my, you know, enthusiasm about this possibility didn't create this sort of sense of obligation on her end. And so I was like, all right, I've got to make sure that I really have like a very, you know, nuanced and uh, thoughtful conversation with her about what this would mean for us and our life together if we were to start this business. And like Kit and I spent a good chunk of that drive, like just sort of gaming out the different conversations that I would be having. Like, all right, so if you say this and she says this, what do you do? All right, if I say that and like doing some role play. And then by the time we got back, I was like, put this wig on. (laughs) I was like, I am ready to have this difficult conversation. And so, you know, I, 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 you know, I walk into my apartment I drop my bags and I say, you know, and, you know, just sort of relax a little bit. And then later on in the evening, I, I say to Emily, my fiance, I was like, you know, look, I, I want to be honest with you. I, I think that this is a real opportunity and I think I want to pursue it, but it would mean that we would have to leave New York and, and move to Massachusetts. And, and I wasn't even able to get like more than two or three words out more before she went, yeah, okay. That sounds fine. Yep. And I was like, oh, all right, cool. So I, I definitely over-prepared for that one. And I think having, <laughs> having the support of, of her, having her support has been the crucial factor here because like I, it is not an easy industry. It's not an easy business to get stood up. We had to go through a ton of uncertainty and it was, it was, I I can tell you that it would have been really, really difficult to get through all of that if I hadn't had someone, you know, behind me supporting my ambitions hundred percent of the way. And so I think it was the combination of making sure that, you know, combination of Everyone that I knew and trusted sort of involved in this being on the same page and feeling like, yeah, this is a dream that we can pursue. And the fact that like I was at that point, I think, uh, you know, I was about to turn 30. I was saying to myself, I have the opportunity to take one big risk. Everyone else seems to be on board. I'm good with it. Let's make it happen. It's such a freeing feeling. Like I, I you're taking me to that like moment where my ideas were validated. And at the time I didn't have co-founders. I had my, my wife at the time, you know, to, to get support from, but it was really like kind of convincing myself and the new England cannabis conventions were also a big part of my journey. And Mm. even, even more validating was a few years, maybe two years into starting Canaplan was, was going out to Las Vegas. Oh yeah. That's, you know, like with the knee cans and this is 2016, 17, 18. I was at that, you know, I was at the convention, you know, the Heinz Convention Center that year that you mm-hmm. went. Um, we were exhibiting. But those conventions, they're small. New England is small. And um the uh, you know, there's a lot happening in cannabis for sure, but it's a small marketplace. And then you pick up and you go out to Las Vegas for BizCon and you're like, holy shit. Like 
holy shit, like this is a whole other planet that I'm in. And I was just on a, a the plane for a, a couple hours and I'm on a totally different planet. And your idea is completely validated. And that can happen. I mean, that happened for me at Nikan too. Like for sure. I was like, when I went to my first trade show, I was like, I got this. Then I went to Vegas and I was like, oh shit. Like, <laughs> oh, this yep. is like, there's captains of industry here yet that don't even know they're captains of industry yet. You know, like Absolutely. that whole thing. It was very, it was very clear to me. Um, and I also remember leaving, you know, conventions in those early days are not even like I'd go to like, for me, the first thing that like kind of before I quit my job and, and started can of planners in order to like dip my toe in was advocacy. And I was a shitty advocate. Like, you know, I wasn't holding a, <laughs> a poster in front of, you know, I was at the state house, but I, you know, I, I, it was, it was more of the only way I knew how to network at the time. And really the only networking we had in the state of Vermont, um, so trying to go there and find like, oh, there's people like me doing what I'm doing um, is very exciting. And, you know, the fact that you had your boys there being like, all right, Liam, this is what you got to say to your wife. Like, this is how we do it. This is how we get to Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that you didn't, you know, she was she was bought in. That's, you know, that is an alignment for sure. That is a uh, the universe saying, Liam, here you go, buddy. Don't fuck this up. So you had a job, right? Yep. You were working for NPR. You were working for the moth. Um, can you, can you talk to me about the moth? Tell my listeners what them, I, yeah. I, that's a big part of my podcasting, uh, you know, role back when I used to commute, um, in a car, what's the moth. So, uh, the moth is, uh, it's a lot of things, but the best way to describe it is that it is a nonprofit organization devoted to promoting the art of, live storytelling. And so they've been around for over 20 years. They're based in New York, but they have an international presence. And they also, uh, you know, the way that they have built their, their brand and their, um, you know, their, their presence is they were a, at first they were just doing live events. And so their live events have remained largely unchanged. They have uh, sort of their bread and butter, which are called their story slams. It's like a poetry slam, but instead of going up and reading poetry, you go up and you tell a, a true story about your life. You are given a time limit. You're given like some basic restrictions, uh, you know, on what you can and can't do, like no props. Uh, it's just got to be you up there telling a story about your life. It's got to be true. And then at the end, the audience votes by applause, I think, or maybe they do it through uh, some sort of uh, ballot on which story was the best. And the person who wins uh, gets a prize and then also has the opportunity to join one of the other larger moth events, which are like big curated, what they call main stage events, where it's, uh, you know, uh, five or six storytellers telling longer extended versions of the stories that won them in the slam. And that was uh, at the time putting on events like that was something that was really, you know, you know, in the early 2000s, it was a great it was a great way to attract an audience. But they had the uh, they had the very important uh, realization that you could also record these events, both on uh, <laughs> audio and on video, and you could turn the best stories into a radio show or, at the time, this new medium called podcasting. And so they oh. were one of the er they were one of the earliest uh, sort of prominently known yeah. podcasts, along with like This American Life, and the best. they as a result, have this really interesting uh, intersection of the work that they do between sort of like 
you know, uh, forward thinking digital media and like very traditional like event production. But also in the last 20 years, they've expanded into things like having corporate training programs and working with nonprofit, other nonprofits that are serving uh, incarcerated populations. They uh, work with public schools. Um, it really is just an incredible institution. And when I joined as their digital marketing lead, it was a really exciting job to have because up until that point, I had worked in books and publishing. And even though the moth, you know, also, you know, they also write books, they have, they have there are moth books out there. It was a, a step out of a, a fairly, um, a fairly well-developed industry into a, it, it felt like I was working in a really unique place because this was a uh, sort of a senior or uh, really well-respected player in what was still a very, you know, and still is a fairly new and developing industry, which is podcasting and, uh, and, and digital media. And, and I think that it was a job that I probably could have worked at for up until now, I still would have been at if the siren song of Fernway hadn't come calling, because I really enjoyed working there. I loved the people. I loved the experience of being able to engage mm. their audiences online and to be able to meet the storytellers. I got to travel uh, for that job, which was super fun. I got to travel to Flint, Michigan to their first show in Flint. And it was also my first time in Michigan. Uh, and it was the kind of place that uh, I really, uh, you know, as someone who I love, uh, I love books and I have always enjoyed, I always enjoyed my time in publishing, but I was looking for something bigger and more expansive. And the moth was definitely that. But then when I realized that the cannabis space was, was beckoning, I was like, oh God, I've got to make a decision. And what I was really, what I'm really thankful for is that when I told my manager, like, Hey, I, I love working here and you're a great manager, but I need to put in my notice because I'm going to be starting a business. Every single reaction I got from everyone there was, Oh my God, we're so happy for you. We can't wait to see you be successful. And it was like, it was, it was a feeling uh, that again was like further validation that I was making the right decision. Now, it was certainly scary because I got married and then two weeks later I quit my job and I started on yeah. Fernway full time. But it was, uh, it was, it was to me the kind of place that I, I felt comfortable, uh, leaving, but I will always treasure my time there. And I think that I'm excited to be able to, uh, see them continue to grow because I think that the, uh, the sort of the creativity and the passion behind that project is something that I can really, I, you know, it's, it's a nonprofit. So it's, you know, not a uh, sort of founder led, there's like a board of directors, right. but the, the founders, the people who started them off were still very much involved in the sort of senior leadership. And so I was able to see what like the pride of ownership really looked like, um, uh, you know, for a business yeah. and, a, and, a, and an institution that had grown and been able to find success and build a community. So I think I look back on the uh, sort of the senior members of the team and I feel a lot more uh, familiarity with the things that they must have gone through to be able to build them off to the, you know, the brand that it is today. It's very interesting to hear you say that you loved your job because most, I would say all <laughs> entrepreneurs that every po uh, podcast I've done with an entrepreneur <clears throat> for this podcast specifically uh, has had, this is very interesting to me because generally there is a personality trait consistent among founders and C people. And uh, to someone who isn't that person, it can be arrogance. It can be, uh, 
self-confidence. It can be feeling like the smartest person in the room. It can be all of these things that, uh, uh, when interpreted might be bad, bad personality, bad personality characteristics, right? Like they're not attractive traits generally, but they're the traits of super ambitious people. And, and usually when I'm having this exact part of the conversation with my guests, it's like, Oh, I was the smartest person in the room or like I hated my job (laughs) or I was a shitty employee or, you know, whatever. And I had no choice. And this is true for me. I, I was a terrible employee. I mean, I was good at my job, but I was a bad employee because I felt like I knew how to do things better, even despite not owning the business. I wanted to act like I did. I wanted to make decisions. All of these things that are probably very annoying to an employer. Um, that that was me. And that's been the case with most people I've spoken with. So it's interesting to hear you say that, like, not only did you like your job, you loved it. And if Fernway hadn't come along, you'd probably still be there. Yeah, well, it was... I, I and I, I I think that the you know the 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 way that you're describing like oh the conditions at my job were such that it just it only made sense for me to leave and start my own thing like I I think that I don't I you know I don't it was not something that was that feeling was not something that was motivating me to leave the moth but there was a good like six month period between when we decided to start the business and when I actually quit that I like had to Uh juggle both of them. And I think that what I realized increasingly as Mm -hmm. I got further and further down the pathway of starting Fernway uh, is that the feeling of independence and agency, being able to see the, the impact that your actions have, having the sort of control of your own destiny, that feeling was just so powerful that it, was impossible for me to reconsider that this was going to end with me quitting my job and starting off on this path. And I think that I had to give myself that permission because I was someone who took, you know, I took my professional responsibilities very seriously and I took my sort of loyalty to the the organization seriously. Like I said, it's a, it's a company that's been around for 50 years or 50 years, 20 years or, or more, but it still had the feel of like a small company. And so I was very conscious and sensitive about not letting my, uh, you know, not, not letting my extracurriculars interfere with my job. But the more I explored the extracurriculars, the more yes. kind of satisfaction that I felt that I was not ever, I could never recall feeling from any other job where I was working for someone else. And I think that that feeling was so strong and so undeniable that by the time I did, you know, go to my manager and tell him like, I got to put in my notice. I was not worried that I was going to back down or that I was going to lose my nerve because I knew exactly what it is that I was stepping into and I knew what it meant for me. And I think that even though obviously I was never able, I was not able to foresee any of the sort of challenges and hurdles that ended up coming with it. I could feel that this was a step in the right direction because every single time that I focused on Fernway, it filled me with such a sense of purpose that I felt had you know, I realized had been missing in my other professional pursuits. And I think that to me is a very familiar experience that I've, I've also heard from other entrepreneurs that like, once you, once you start working for yourself, it's very difficult to go back. A hundred percent. I say this to, um, my partner all the time, which is, you know, can of planners has to do well. <laughs> can of planners or whatever we build after can of planners has to do well, because like, 
no one's going to hire us. We're terrible yep. employees. You know what I mean? Like yep. this is there's no this backstop. Yeah, there's really not. And I would say that there is a huge, like that sounds, that might sound like a very scary thing, right? Of course. And, and, and it is, it's I not guess. not for everybody. No, it's not. But just that feeling alone of being like, okay, not everybody, not everybody can believe, most people won't believe in themselves to think that they've got it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So that fear of, that fear, which may be, um, and I'm I'm not I mean I'm not using the word fear in terms of like a nightmare, but I mean that that reticence of not just jumping right in when Kit's like let's build a business and waiting that six months and like trying to fact find. Really, what you're doing is kind of validating yourself. You know, on the car ride down after Nikan, it's like yeah, all right, we'll start a business. And then every day you're doing something, you're like oh shit, we're yeah. starting a business. And then one day you're like we have a business. Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're still working. And that, that's exactly what happened to me. And I was working at a job realizing like, I'm not doing my employer any favors by like trying to balance both of these things. When meanwhile, like I'm giving less and less and less of a shit about this thing. That's not mine. Yeah. Because I've just discovered that I can take care of myself. Absolutely. And it's a, uh, it's something that I, again, I know it's not for everybody. And I think that I didn't think that it was for me until I tried it. And that I think combined with the support of, you know, my closest friends and, you know, the fact that when I told my, my parents, like, Hey guys, I'm going to be quitting my job two weeks after we get married. Uh, so that I can start a cannabis company when I said, Oh, and it's with Kit and Kevin, they were like, Oh, well, we know Kit yeah. and Kevin, those guys are great. Yeah. You'll do fine. Sure. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it was, <laughs> I was not the only one who was going through this, you know, Kit, uh, Kit quit his job first. He quit his job in August of 2018, but you know, Kevin was still working in his management consulting role. I was working at the Moth until uh, late October. David, our, our fourth co-founder, um, he we connected with him uh, a few months into our sort of, uh, you know, after NECAN, like I, we were basically like trying to figure out what pieces we need to needed to assemble to move forward. And we all realized like none of us have a finance mind. We need a CFO. We need someone who can really build a financial model and can really be the money guy. And when we had that realization, it just so happened that David, who is a friend of Kit's little sister, uh, was working at a hedge fund, uh, analyzing some of the Canadian uh, cannabis producers and uh, just on his, just as an extracurricular, just something he was interested in. And he connected with Kit, they had a beer and uh, the rest is history. But we all had to sort of accept that there was going to be a point where we uh, as we like to call it, we burn our ships and go to shore. And I think that we all found our way to that point, but it was the feeling of, if we do this, there is a place to land that made it possible. And the place to land was each other for, for at least a few years, because it was a long wait between quitting my job in October, 2018 and selling our first product in February of 2021. And I presume you weren't paying yourself at all well, until then, you know. Uh for at, at least not for the for the initial days, we did end up doing a small fundraise to be able to get us through the licensing process and that allowed us to pay ourselves a small salary and actually like, you know, live and not just have no income, which I had uh which live. was basically like the yeah, the the first 6 months of uh of of post moth was no income at all. And I think that that was something that we knew would not be sustainable, but that it also was in retrospect, one of the most important 
things that we did for ourselves to be able to allow us to focus on this full time. And I, I look at other businesses that I've met along the, along the road and I encountered a lot of people who were incredibly smart. They were incredibly uh, driven. They were gifted. They were focused, but they had to work their full-time job while inventing this, you know, business in, you know, in their free time or in the garage. And not everybody can do that. Even if you do have all everything that it takes to be a solid entrepreneur, if you've got a big uh, weight on your uh, attention, on your time, on your bandwidth, that is eight plus hours a day, it can be very difficult to take advantage of those opportunities when they come along. And I think I am, I am constantly thankful that we gave ourselves the space to be able to focus on Fernway full time because it meant that we were able to become subject matter experts and that we were also able to solve problems whenever they arose. And I think that it was also clear to us from jump that we were going to be waiting a long time. There was not any public information yeah, about this, but we did a lot of discussions with other applicants and people who had applied for licenses. And what we found out pretty pretty quickly is that we could expect to wait probably a year between submitting our license application, getting a license. And that is exactly what happened. And that was uh, that was a long year. That was a long yeah. year to wait because we had a lot of work to do in that year. But after a certain point, you're waiting on a regulator that will not respond to your emails. And it just kind of feels it can be easy to lose hope. And I think that that, uh, you know, being able to put ourselves in a position where we could give each other hope as well as continue to support all of our different you know activities that we needed to be able to prepare to get the license, to renovate our facility, to build our brand, to develop our products, like all these things that we had to raise money for and we had to mobilize resources for, like we would not have been able to focus on those fully and to be able to avoid hazards and take advantage of opportunities if we had not given ourselves the ability to to live and work full time for this for this for this company before we actually started making revenue. Well, I think I feel like incredibly envious because I did not have like you know your your parents, your friends, um your spouse whatever like those are people who obviously will support you and love you no matter what and um but there's no they don't that doesn't mean they get it. You know, that doesn't yeah. mean they like can contextualize uh, the emotion you're, that, that you're pouring into this, the time, you know, whatever, the, it, just the energy, however you cut it, the amount of work you're putting into building something. Um, you're incredibly fortunate to be able to have these people around you who were rowing the boat with you, but also mm -hmm. had been rowing the boat with you for most of your life. You know, like yeah. that's, that's amazing. You know, they're, they're Talk about, I mean, the, a story you hear frequently from founders is regarding the co-founder kind of duality relationship, however many co-founders you have, like most times it doesn't work. You know, I've gone through a couple co-founders myself, um, and for whatever reason, you know, work ethic or usually work ethic, but you know, it doesn't always work. And it sucks when it does. It really sucks when it doesn't because there goes your, there goes your support, you know, group for, for building this, this company together. Um, so that's, it's pretty awesome that you got to do it with your homies. And I presume 
you're all still homies, right? And that's yeah, a beautiful we thing. We are. We yeah. we can still stand each other somehow. It's, it's an important thing because it's hard to do. Um, and that leads me to my next thing. Uh, and I will I will show the relationship how momentarily. So I've heard you uh, talk about your mom before. Uh, she, she's a working musician. Uh, that's that's amazing. Uh, that's another thing people can't contextualize is what that means. It's like, oh, you mm-hmm. you play the violin. Like that's awesome. No, I yes, I play the violin, but that has nothing to do with being a working musician. So following my graduation from college. I was also a working musician. I toured the country uh, in a rock and roll band for like four or five years, playing hundreds of shows around the country uh, with my buddies, you know, like my co-founders, my, my, you know, bad bunch. Um, (laughs) And in one of them was Josh Cleaver, who's the creative director of Canna Planners. Um, And we toured the country together forever. Um, and luckily Josh and I didn't, you know, there wasn't anything terrible that happened with Josh and I, but being in a van with four dudes, like driving thousands <laughs> of miles, like you want to murder each other at the end of a small tour. Um, people don't really, like I said, people don't understand what it means to be a musician. You're, you know, you're, dr- you're on the road for, you know, sometimes 10, 12 hours a day. You're waiting till like 9 PM to start work. Uh, and then you're playing, you know, music till 1am to a bunch of drunk idiots, or if you're lucky to drunk idiots and usually <laughs> to an empty room, you know, like all of these things. So it's a real hustle. 90% of it is not, is, is, has nothing to do with playing music. Uh, so I'm sure your mom kind of, kind of relates to this. You wear all the, similar to like being an entrepreneur, a founder, you're wearing all the hats. You're the book, you know, you're the violin player, but you're the booker, you're the manager, you're the, you know, mm-hmm the caterer, you know, whatever, uh, the light guy, the roadie, you're all of these things. So I'm kind of curious what your perspective of that, specifically your mom's, your your mom being a working musician, what your perspective of that was and like how that impacted your understanding of what work ethic is. Uh, I, I, I can, I can definitely speak to that. Um, it's, it's had a huge impact on my perception of work ethic. I think, that and, and, and my father too, because, you know, my father and mother actually met in a band, um, back in the seventies, they were, they played in a disco band together that tour, you know, that, Hell yeah, that, they you know, did. They were know. cool as fuck, Liam. Yeah. They played, you know, they played like bars and restaurants and parties in Connecticut and new England. And they, uh, you know, my, my mom, uh, continues to be a violinist. My dad decided at some point, like, I'm going to put down the bass and you know, not, not, not forever. Uh, I'm going to, you know, my dad still plays, uh, but that's when he decided to enter the law career. So yeah. he, he was relatively, he was a little late to, to the law. He went to law school when he was in his early forties, um, when I was, you know, just a baby, but it was, I think watching, I was, so I was able to witness two sort of different manifestations of extremely strong work ethic growing up. One was my mom who, you know, is a, uh, you know, often a solo uh, proprietor. She does, you know, collaborate with other musicians. She has sort of like a couple different ensembles that she's been part of over the years. Um, and she she does gigs with, you know, multiple other musicians sort of as part of a, a part of an overall roster. But she really is like a solo owner and operator of her business and watching not only, you know, her 
on the hustle, but the extreme satisfaction that she took from the hustle and Mm -hmm. just the pride that she would exhibit and continues to like, I was on the phone with her and, uh, my, my dad and my sister the other day, and my mom was bragging about how many gigs that she's already booked for 2023. And like, you know, she's in her mid seventies at this point and she's still going strong. And I think that was, it is exhausting to be a musician. Like that is, of course, that's amazing. Like, I, I would high five your mom because like absolutely the exhaustion I feel for her just hearing that is incredible. And p- usually what happens and like, this is, this is what I love most about your mom. I love your mom. But what I love most about her is like, it took me three years, four years to like hate music. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's very easy to be like, fuck this. Like, I never want to play the guitar ever again. I never want to sing another song. If I never hear another note, it's going to be like all those things. Like, that's not an uncommon thing. You know, meanwhile, you heal, you learn to love music again, you come back, you pick up the guitar, you still got it. Um, But it, it, you know, it's painful. It's painful to be a musician because deep, and now I'm talking about yourself. I'm not, and maybe your mom can relate to this too, but deep down inside every musician, there's like a teeny tiny little rock star just trying to get out. And usually what happens is what happens to 99.999% of musicians is they just play music. And that's totally beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. The world should be full of music, but turning it into a livelihood and also not becoming bitter about it, that is beautiful. Mm-hmm. That is truly well, and, beautiful. And I never sensed any bitterness from my mom. In fact, it was quite the opposite where I could see not only the pride that she took in in the work itself, but also the the sort of the I was able to witness and you know grow up in the same house as someone who was making a living in a creative field. Which, yeah. you know, as someone who, you know, I was an English major in college. I, you know, I was, you know, I used to sing in a, in a boys' choir. I did high school theater, like creativity has always been a core part of my personal and professional life. But oftentimes when you're thinking about it as a professional pursuit, you think, well, I'm never going to be able to make money that way. And I was able to, you know, think about my mom as a true counterexample of that. And as a true counter argument to say like, you know, you can make money in a creative profession. It's hard work and you have to hustle and you have to be able to appreciate the, the, you know, the, the parts of the business and the parts of the job that are not creative that are administrative, that are annoying, that are, you know, the the sort of balance between the art and the business side. But if you can do that, you can have a very successful life. And I think my dad is sort of a different example of that, where he's someone who, even though, you know, his, his work in the law was not something that I think was satisfying all of his creative impulses, he still maintained like plenty of creative pursuits outside of work while also working incredibly hard like this was someone who i he was out the door by the time that i was awake and he had a very long commute to go to his his job at the law office but it was a job that he really loved he he's still you know he only stopped practicing practicing law uh relatively recently he's he's always loved the law and i think that being able to see someone who you know, sort of joined up with a, you know, for lack of a better term, like an industry with institutions like that versus the sort of solo career that my mom has had and still is able to, uh, you know, find satisfaction and, you know, uh, achieve, uh, achieve satisfaction and achieve success. I think that to me is, was, it was great to be able to have those examples growing up because I was able to say to myself, like, you know, if I wanted to pursue a creative field, I would have a blueprint for it. And if I wanted to pursue a professional field, I could do that too. And 
it was, I never felt from either of them that I was sort of on any one particular track, which was good because it made me feel like I had the freedom to, to make the choices that would make me the most happy and make me the most secure. And they were supportive of you. And of course, I'm sure that's all they wanted of you is happiness, whether it was through creativity or uh, being, you know, an Uber professional or in your case and my case, you know, figuring out a way to kind of combine the two and, you know, be expressive and have our own voice, but still like go to work every day. Absolutely. That's awesome, man. That's a beautiful thing. I, um, my father, also an attorney, um, same deal. Like, you know, you, you, growing up bounced between firms, you know, before starting his own. And, and I think, you know, it took me a long time before I was self-aware, even being in a band, you know, like it took me a long time before I was self-aware enough to like understand what was happening even to me. Like, why is, why is dad spending so much time at work? Like I, you know, I didn't get that. Uh, Am I, you know, being in a band, like not really being conscious enough to understand that I'm an entre- that I'm being an entrepreneur, that the opportunity, you know, like I'm hustling and it feels like I'm just driving around the country playing the guitar, but you know, like I'm, 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 you know, giving good customer service and I'm cold calling, you know, a thousand venues a month or whatever it is to, to, it's interesting that you had that self-awareness young enough to be like, okay, this is like, I have the best of both worlds here and I have really good role models who are showing me the right way to do it. You're surrounded Absolutely. by good people, Liam. You're surrounded by good people. You're very fortunate. I'm a lucky man. <laughs> you are. Uh, so let's, let's talk about Fernway. So sure. you're, you're at the kitchen table telling your wife like, Hey, this is, I see an opportunity. Um, and she's like, let's do it. So, and I know it wasn't Fernway, but how did you know it was, this business model? How did you know it was concentrates? How did you know that this was kind of the area that you would all thrive in? Because you hadn't come from cannabis. You were consumers, presumably, right? Like you like, you liked weed, but um, Mm -hmm. what did you, what did you know about any of this? Well, uh, short answer, not much. I think that we, and we accepted that and embraced that. We embraced that our inexperience was something that we were, we embraced our inexperience. And I think that was honestly one of the things that pointed us towards branded goods and away from other, from other verticals like cultivation and retail. Um, So I think, you know, part of this was that we were looking and we, we knew that Massachusetts would be our entry market. It was the only state in the Northeast at that point that had legalized. It was close enough to New York that we felt like we could travel to and from there without it being too much of a headache. And Mm -hmm. the most important thing, the state of Massachusetts was not going to be placing a hard cap on the amount of licenses they gave out, which meant that we were not going to have to compete with people with, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, in venture capital that they could just use to, to basically shut out competition. We, we, had, we knew there was an opening for a new enterprise for, uh, for a startup like ours. And we realized pretty quickly that, you know, if we were going to, for example, go into cultivation, not knowing anything about cultivation was going to be a problem. And retail, I have worked retail before. I had no desire to return to it. And Hard. the... And, and and it also is in Massachusetts, you're only allowed to have three stores. So you have to be very, uh, I mean, you, you on one hand, uh, it, depending on when you open, you can make a lot of, you get a lot of customers quickly, but 
in the long term, you have to have a really good location. You have to it, it's it's a it is a an endurance test to be able to open a retailer in a in a new state because eventually there's a lot more retailers and you don't have the same clout that you used to. So I think for us, we looked at retail as uh, as a game that would have more hazards uh, that we you know would otherwise want to avoid, but manufacturing was really intriguing to us for a couple of reasons. One, we knew that there was value in building a brand and we knew that manufactured goods would be a better brand vector, a better brand vehicle than retailer cultivation. Um, even though flour is the most popular product on every dispensary menu, uh, we knew that the branded goods space was expanding and we studied other markets on the West Coast and we saw that in particular, vapes would start to take market share away from flour and other inhalables the moment that a legal that, that a legal that a state you know a state's legal market opened. And so we sort of zeroed in on vapes and we said, you know, if we do one thing really well, it will set us apart from the competition because Massachusetts at that time was and still is largely uh, dominated by vertically integrated players that do you know cultivation manufacturing of every single cannabis product you can imagine. They do their own retail. And we didn't have the resources to do that, but we also knew that we could get our foot in the door if we specialized. And so that was large, that and the fact that vapes and cannabis vapes were something that we, you know, had, we, we weren't early adopters of by any means, but like we each tried them and been like, holy shit, this is a game changer. Like you can get high without having to light a joint. You can, you know, uh, put this thing in your pocket and just like go to the party and not have to worry about like it coming apart in your purse or something like that. Uh, you know, there was a that sort of aha moment that you get when you try a product that is a truly innovative product and you go, oh, my God, yes, this changes everything. And I think that understanding that there was a market that was going to be growing, that we could get a, like we could get a position in. If we specialized, if we were subject matter experts, if we built our business around the product rather than build the product around the business, uh, that was the thing we heard from a lot of cannabis entrepreneurs. Like we, we heard it in the context of specking out a lab and a production facility, but there was this continuous refrain of envision the product and build backwards. Don't do it the other way around. And I think our focus on product and our focus on product development in particular is something that has served us really well. But at the time, we just knew that we needed to make the best possible vape line because that was what we were staking our business on. And that was a uh, it was a really compelling pitch to our initial round of investors who were largely friends and family who knew, had known us for many years. Um, and everything was going really well until September of 2019, when the governor of Massachusetts banned all vapes statewide. Every single vape was pulled off the shelf. And this was in response to a rash of uh, what was essentially poisonings. Uh, right. People were buying cannabis vapes in the unlicensed market. They were being uh, treated. The vapes were being treated with poisonous additives that were being used to stretch the supply of cannabis oil. And people were getting sick. And because public health officials had no real understanding of cannabis vapes or vaping or the sort of trade of unlicensed vapes, uh, they took this as an opportunity to completely overstep and ban every single vape, uh, nicotine, cannabis, it didn't matter. And that was a pretty uh, anxiety-inducing time for us because we had just submitted a license application to the state of Massachusetts saying, we will only make vapes. We had just <laughs> raised money from our friends and family saying, we will only make vapes. And now the governor was saying, 
No, not only not. can you not <laughs> can you not make va- like not only are you not allowed to make vapes, it's actually like illegal for you to do yeah. that. And our you know our total addressable market it went from whatever to zero. And I think that it was it was it was certainly a challenge to keep the faith in that time, but we did because we knew that the idea was still good. And sure enough, the courts found that this was a case of executive overreach. They returned the power to ban vapes or any other cannabis product to the Cannabis Control Commission, who took a much more nuanced and thoughtful approach to the issue that was in the news. And they instituted some new regulations to make sure that no one was using those additives. And a few months later, we were back on track. And then COVID hit. And we had a whole bunch of other things to deal with. We had to be raising money during a pandemic. We had to start construction during a pandemic. It was in retrospect, it was an incredibly uh, insane emotional roller coaster. But throughout yeah. all of that, knowing that we were specializing and that we were using that to be able to build our brand and our community was something that never went away. And I think our focus on vapes was was incredibly. Uh, I'm glad that we stuck to it because it was some. It was a space where we could innovate and we could build a community and a following. And I think that we were able to get people's attention and compete in the marketplace precisely because we stayed on track and we stayed with that narrow focus. And even though we've expanded our focus and will continue to do so uh, in the coming years, having that as sort of our formative experience really drove home to me the importance of sticking by your guns. You've said a lot there, two th- a lot. And two things stick out to me, which was... um the sticking to your guns, right. And not knowing what you don't know. Right. So at the start of this, I said, why vapes? And you said, ah, we didn't know anything about, you know, that's really interesting to me because one thing that holds us back as entrepreneurs or as potential entrepreneurs is the fear that we aren't smart enough to figure something out or that we are, don't have the same tool set as some other entrepreneur, um, who, you know, knows how to Google better than you do. You know what I mean? Like, Every day, and I'm, I'm sure this is the, you know, the, the case for you. Every day, I learn something new, and of course, that sounds like hyperbolous and maybe even obvious. But like, when it comes to running a business, there's the amount of shit I don't know and don't know I don't know is endless. But you mm-hmm. have to be able to um, accept that, accept that your to do list will will never end, and on that to do list are going to be. 90 percent of it is going to be things you don't understand but you have to at least have the uh resolve to be like i'm gonna figure this out that that's really interesting and the other part of this is kind of all of the lumps you took during this all of those things um not knowing when to say no or not knowing to give up or uh you know not allowing yourself to give up even when you don't know stuff or a global pandemic comes or the governor shuts you down or whatever, whatever, whatever. There's all these things that are thrown at you a thousand times a day, every single day that are just saying to you, Hey, Liam, quit, just quit, just quit Fernway. It's so much easier to not do any of this. Quit, give up give up like, and being able to, uh, and learning to not ignore that voice, but, uh, take it with a grain of salt is not a skill that most humans have. (laughs) It's, it's super difficult. 
It was not, uh, I can't, I can't take credit for it because I had, you know, I had my co-founders, we had each other. And I think that, yeah. that, you know, that for us was the difference between saying, I I can't do this and saying, no, we can, because we had each other to check in with every day. We were able to, you know, as, as both friends and as co-founders be able to keep each other supported throughout times of uncertainty and uh, frustration of which there were many. And yeah. I think that we definitely came out the other side uh, stronger, but I think also just we're a lot more comfortable with embracing uncertainty now. And that's something sometimes I have to remind myself is that not everyone is, it's not something that everyone yeah. is able to just sort of, you know, let flow over them. And I think that that has been something I've really noticed about myself over the past few years is my tolerance for uncertainty has really gone up over yeah. time. Well, there's a thin line between um, anxiety and excitement. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> like the, you know, the, <laughs> The line between being terrified and confident is razor thin, razor thin. And again, Absolutely. like you're lucky to have a great support group around you. Um, talk to me about, cause you guys are constantly creating new products. Uh, yeah. So talk to me about that. I mean, it's exciting. You get to be in the lab, you get to be creative, you get to make new things, learn how to market them um, and then go sell them. Tell me about uh, kind of, ideating new product, like what goes into a product launch yeah. um, and what kind of concentrates are you guys most focused on right now? And yes, I am old. So explain them to me, Liam, please. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll save the concentrate tutorial for the end because I'm sure that I could put that. Uh, I'm sure that I could go into exhaustive detail there, but I will I'm try sure. my damnedest not to. Um, so uh, we uh, product development is a really core part of our business because we are I think for us, we we are certain about a couple things about the cannabis consumer. One is that they are they are you know they're smart and they're sensitive more so than I think a lot of brands may give them credit for. And even if they, for example, are not you know super literate in the most you know in the most current cannabis you know discourse and science, they know when they're getting ripped off and they yeah. know when they are getting something that's undervalued and. Part of the uh, part of the experience of being a cannabis customer is being told that something is the new hotness, and yeah. <laughs> then trying it and being like, "I this is not that exciting. This is not that not new." Hot. And I, and that that cognitive dissonance is something that I'm very familiar with as a consumer. And I think that I we also know deep down in our hearts that cannabis cannabis customers, cannabis consumers, while they are creatures of habit, I certainly am. We all like our rituals. We all like our, you know, our, our favorite piece, our favorite smoke spot, our favorite, uh, you know, our favorite strains. People yeah. are creatures of habit, but because it's cannabis, because it is this new and exciting world that people are, uh, our people are shopping in, that novelty does go a long way, but it can't just be novelty. It has to be novelty uh, based in quality. And so for mm -hmm. us, we take product development as both an opportunity to explore that novelty, but we are very careful and very deliberate about how we go about it so that we can bake in the same degree of quality that people have come to expect from us. Can, and can we, when it can we perhaps contextualize with an example? Sure. Yeah. So what I'll was your you product? What was your product launch this fall? <laughs> well, we had a, well, I mean, we had a number of product launches this fall. You know but, which one I'm talking about. <laughs> Are you uh, are you talking about the one that we threw that big party for? I think so. I think you had a party for it, and I think that it is like the the flavor of the season. <laughs> so yes, we uh, 
in October, we <laughs> put out our pumpkin spice flavor. It was the first That's time the we one. ever launched our pumpkin spice flavor. And that was, uh, a, uh, that was a really fun launch and campaign totally. because we, uh, for us, like part of the thing that we take really seriously when it comes to product development is being responsive and being able to iterate, iterate and innovate quickly rather than having, you know, getting dragged down in endless deliberations and decision making. And we build our process of product development and our partnerships with manufacturers and packaging vendors around being able to provide a true custom product, but at the same time, be able to optimize our process so that we can do that customization and we can provide new products on a regular basis and not have it be like, you know, one drop every two years. So when we did our pumpkin spice drop, we said, you know, we've done flavor drops before, but let's put ourselves or, you know, we, we put out new flavors before, but we've never done something where there's like a, there's like a seasonal hype component to it. Yeah, and yeah, totally. we had a really, we had a great flavor formulation. It had these wonderful notes of like cinnamon and clove and a little sweetness to it. And we said, you know, we could, if we put this out as pumpkin spice, then we can really build a whole experience around it. We can really build this seasonal hype around it that we've never previously tried. And so we really pulled out all the stops for it. You know, we made a bunch of custom merch. We did this big launch party. We did a bunch of pre-marketing. Like my team was firing on all cylinders and it was a joy to behold. And I think that it's also product development for us is about challenging ourselves. It's about pushing ourselves to do things that we haven't done before. And rather than just do variations on a theme to create new themes. And so we are, I mean, our, you know, I could, I could go on and on and on, but I will say that one thing I really do want to bring up here is that we're about to face our, our biggest, uh, our biggest like uh, expansion yet, which is that we are not in, in a few months, Fernway is not going to be a cannabis vape brand anymore. We are going to be a cannabis brand. We are going to be expanding our offerings from just vapes to vapes, premium pre-rolls, and premium packaged flour. And that is going to put us in a position where we have a lot more customers and we have a lot greater responsibility to those customers uh, because Fernway means quality and Fernway means uh, excellent customer service. But we are so excited to expand because we built a brand that's very popular and we take that responsibility very seriously. And for us, that means being able to provide new and exciting offerings to both our existing customers, but also to meet new customers, to meet the, you know, 50, 60 percent of people who are buying flour and pre-rolls in dispensaries rather than the, you know, 15, 20 percent that are buying vapes. And I think that that like that that ambition is something that is sort of shot through our product development process. We're always pushing ourselves to be like, can we make it a little better? Can we design it a little bit more deliberately? Can we make the materials a little bit more premium? There's a, a degree of restlessness that the product development process is is sort of based in. And it's something that Never started done. with just the it started with just the four of us around a table in a in a house. And a lot of the uh, product development, you know, that we're doing now is leveraging our team. We now have a, a you know, a big team of people who can help us do R&D and who are able to contribute to product development processes and to be able to provide ideas. And so we've expanded the brain trust, but we've always kept our focus on making sure that when we say that something's innovative, that it actually is. When we say it's quality and a premium, that it actually is. And that we are being convincing and authentic in both our words and our actions. Because we are a product company. We're a branded products company. And if our, it is the, our, our vapes right now and soon to be our, our pre-rolls and flour 
those are our brand touch points. That's how we get to know people. That's how they get to know us. And we are 100% invested in making that first impression really, really good because that means that it's going to, number one, lead to long-term customer value, long-term customer loyalty, but it also is a way for us to be able to take pride and ownership of what we mean when we say we're a premium brand that is, uh, you know, we believe that you deserve the best, that you should savor every moment. You know, it's not just sloganeering for us. It's, it's something that we actually live our values. That's awesome, dude. I love hearing, you know, this, this is the, <clears throat> this is the kind of growth trajectory. I just love hearing about where it's like, we're focused on this thing. Um, and then we we become good at this thing. And then we recognize through, through developing this thing, a, you know, a, a cartridge or whatever, we are now recognizing who our customer is. And we are now, mm-hmm. rec- you know, we are building that brand trust with that customer purely based on this one thing. Right. And then as soon as we're ready, we opened it up. And now because we've, we've, you know, uh, set a bar for ourselves in terms of quality, in terms of customer service, in terms of whatever the X factor is, um, we can now provide more value to our customer because we've been listening to them because, you know, they've been receptive to this one thing. We do this one thing. Great. And now we do a a bunch of things really great and it's customer service. It's, uh, you know, providing a good, you know, experience for that end user, whatever it is. Um, so I love hearing that. And that totally removes my last question of what's on the, on the dock for the next couple of months, you know, year, uh, which in cannabis, uh, time is like multiple years. Um, so it sounds like you've got a lot of work to do. There's, there's quite a bit of marketing to do. We're very happy to be partners with you on this. Like you're going to keep us busy. So we're stoked. Well, it's been great working with you guys because not only is this a big new product launch, but it's actually a rebrand. We're going to be uh, updating parts of our brand identity to sort of fit our new position as a cannabis brand, not just, you know, a brand that's going to get a lot more visibility because we are selling products that a lot of people are, you know, in a category that a lot more people are shopping in, but because we're going to be expanding, we're not going to just be a Massachusetts brand uh, for much longer. Our our next state uh, we have our eye on is New Jersey. Um, we're looking to open in New Jersey later this year. And I, you know, beyond that, we, we see a lot of opportunity in continuing to expand and, uh, you know, build a regional brand and then, you know, fingers crossed a national brand. Um, but it is, you know, we, I think the way that we do that is by really committing to this, uh, idea of quality and innovation and, and being responsive to our customers and actually like not, you know, leading them and giving them inspiration, but also, accounting for them and their needs and acknowledging that in ways that are really obvious to them. Um, and the other thing that I would be remiss if I didn't mention is that we also do have uh, our newest uh, our newest vape and our flavor line that's going to be dropping the week after next. Um, we haven't made any announcement yet on uh, social media or anything. So depending on when this airs, this exclusive. may be the exclusive premiere. Um, but our new flavor is... Uh, it's it's actually our uh, our first herbal flavor that we've done in quite some time. It's called Lavender Dream, and it's this it's a wonderful combination of uh, sort of soothing lavender and sweet vanilla. And so uh, imagine, if you will, like a really nice fancy gelato that you might get at the end of a fancy meal. Um, and it's beautiful. It's got a beautiful balance of flavor notes. It's nice and relaxing. Um, we're going to be putting it out in uh, our five ten half gram cartridges at first, and then. Uh, we're going to be putting out in our traveler format as well. And that is uh, actually going to be our first 
flavor line product that we put out with our new branding. So it's also sort of a bit of a soft launch of our new branding. So any of you marketing geeks out there uh, who want to see, you know, what it looks like to, to turn uh, to turn a brand from one thing to another can get a glimpse of that by uh, checking out our Lavender Dream when it drops uh, Monday after this coming one. But, you know, it's that, to, you know, we we have a lot of irons in the fire. We do. But it is always important to me to stay humble, to know your customer. And for me, that really means continuing to have conversations like this when people reach out to me on LinkedIn or on Instagram. I love to talk to people. And maybe this, yeah, maybe this is a little bit of a personal plug opportunity. But if anybody wants to, you know, reach out to me, learn more, get to know Fernway, uh, you can check us out uh, online. We're at Fernway.com. We're on Instagram. Our handle is just Fernway at, you know, F-E-R-N-W-A-Y. Uh, and if you are looking to get in touch with me, I'm on LinkedIn uh, and I'm sure there will be, uh, you can feel free to put my email in the show notes uh, if you'd like. Uh, I'm always happy to talk to people, you know, whether it's entrepreneurs, existing businesses, people who are just curious about the industry, like, and, you know, this is going to sound a little corny, but the thing that made a lot of those long, dark months of uncertainty more bearable wasn't just the fact that I had my partners to rely on, but it was the fact that I had people who I met in the industry in Massachusetts who became my network and became my connections who I could reach out to and I could ask questions to. I could say, hey, how long did it take for you to get a license uh, inspection after you submitted your request? Hey, you know, how do you, un you know, how are you interpreting this part of the regulations? Like, hey, uh, you know, what is your approach to, you know, reaching out to retailers and being able to share knowledge that I've gained over the last few years is something that I take great joy and pride in. And I think that I would just like to do my part to just normalize that free flow of information. Because I think in any new industry, there's a lot of, uh, I think, defensiveness over, you know, proprietary information or like, no, you can't know my secret sauce. And as far as I'm concerned, like, you know, I'm an open book. Like if there's something that I can do to help make your journey through this industry or any industry just a little bit less uh, anxiety inducing and uncertain, uh, I'm happy to do it. So uh, don't hesitate to direct people my way. That's a, a lovely sentiment. There's a there's a section of the Steve Jobs biography where um, they're talking about, you know, pre-Apple days. And, you know, Steve was able to open up the yellow pages and find the phone number of the uh, CEO of HP, you know, of Hewlett Packard. Super and, times. And just call him up and, and the same thing. And to think that, you know, and, you know, someone in the tech field could pick up the phone and call Elon Musk is it's impossible. Maybe you could tweet to, to Elon and maybe he'll see it, but, but <laughs> that but, might actually be a faster way of getting in touch with him. Yeah, totally. But, but to your point, like it's one of the most romantic aspects I feel of being, doing what we do in the space we're doing it in the exact time that we're doing it, which is we're in a nascent industry. We're all nascent entrepreneurs and this is all happening right now. Right. So mm -hmm. that network, that, that exploitation or at least investigation into your network is, is hugely viable. And, and, you know, I, I will, I will go one step further and say, that's the beautiful thing about this industry is when guys like you are like, Hey, if you need to know something, pick up the phone. And that's the exact reason I started this podcast because most people wouldn't do that. Right. And most people would just, like I said before, just be like, ah, fuck it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just, this idea isn't good enough. I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. Um, but that's not true. Um, so I appreciate you saying that. Uh, 
Liam O'Brien, yeah. you've you've taken us from NPR to THC and everywhere in between. You've built an award-winning, <laughs> amazing cannabis companies with your best buddies, and that's something to celebrate. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to be here speaking with me. I appreciate you as a client and as a human. I'm psyched to do great things together. This has been another episode of Common Sense Amia. I've been your host, Will Reed. Please sh- be sure to hit the like and subscribe button, and we will see you next time. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.